Just a couple weeks ago, uh, some good friends of mine welcomed their first child into the world. He's a little boy, and they gave him the name Beck. And I'm not sure if that's short for Beckett, but it reminded me of the importance of the name Beckett to me personally. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, we have an awesome uh, two-year-old boy named Declan, and I love the name Declan. I'm glad we went with Declan. I love what it means. I love how it sounds, and it just sort of fits him. Uh, but we had this sort of top five names uh, before he was born, and we didn't know which one we were going to go with. And one of those names, and one of the ones that I really wanted to be on that list, was Beckett. Beckett's a really significant name to me. It goes back to a time when I was a student and I was studying acting. And we came to a particular unit. One thing we would do is we would spend different units working on different playwrights. And different playwrights would teach us different things about uh, how to be an actor. We'd have to learn different ways uh, to think and be to make different playwrights' plays work. Um, so at one point, my acting teacher, and this is three years into the program, so at this point he knew me pretty well, he called me into his office. And we sat down, and he looked at me, and he said, Brad, I think you might want to take the next unit off. And I said, really? Because this is not something an acting teacher would usually say. They'd want you to try new things and see what you could learn. He's like, this next playwright is, uh, is an atheist, and your faith is so important to you. I just don't really think you're going to be able to relate to anything in his plays. And so if you want to just skip him and move on to, I think George Bernard Shaw was the next one we were working on. If you want to move on to Shaw, that's fine but you can take Samuel Beckett off. And I thought, huh. Well, with that kind of lead-in, I also kind of thought, well, what do I have to lose? Because, you, know, you know, if expectations are really low, you'll never disappoint anyone. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, I ought to at least try one scene from one play and just see how it goes. So I tried a scene from the play Waiting for Godot. Maybe some of you have heard of that play. And so the funny thing for me anyway is usually when I'm working on a play by a new playwright, which I haven't worked on before, uh, it takes a lot of work on my end. You know, I have to try and understand the playwright. I have to understand what the playwright is asking of that character to make the play work and understand the way that they're writing and communicating. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it takes me a little bit to figure it out. Um, but with this Beckett play, Waiting for Godot, the first time I read it, it just seemed to make sense. And I thought, well... Maybe I'm just not getting it, but it, it seems to make sense to me. So I remember when I had my first rehearsal with a scene partner, it was, it was like riding a bike. Uh, it, was, it, it was so easy for me. I thought, something, so I must be missing something. So then when we brought the scene to class and we performed it, lo and behold, people just start laughing hysterically because they're supposed to. <laughs> and it works. And my acting professor's mind was blown. He said, I don't get it. I don't understand how you can understand Samuel Beckett and where his characters are coming from because as I know you, Brad, faith is so important to you. But I think what I learned through that experience is that one of the things that's central to who I am and I really enjoy is that I love interacting with, talking with, thinking with people who are coming from different perspectives from mine. I, I get juiced up. I love spiritual conversations, particularly with people who don't share my perspective or with people who might be thinking of, I don't know if I want to do this Christian thing anymore. Those are my favorite conversations. And when I have those types of conversations and those types of interactions, I feel alive. 
And so that experience was something different. I think God used to teach me something important about who I am, about where I fit, about what I'm supposed to do with my life. And that's what we're going to look at today, how God loves to take things that are different and use them to connect us to our true selves in him. And I think this is a well-timed sermon because things like diversity, things like multiculturalism are more and more popular values in our culture today. At least they're what many of us aspire to. And studies show that within my lifetime, less than 40 years, hopefully that's still my lifetime, uh, the U.S. will become a majority-minority nation, which means no one ethnicity will make up over 50% of the population. And by and large, with notable exceptions, the trend has been towards embracing this. And many folks, particularly in urban settings, see this as a very good thing. And you can even see this in the advertising that's happening all around us. You guys remember the Chevy ad, um, Find New Roads? This is a few years ago. It was released for the Sochi Olympics, so this was a big deal. They thought a lot of people would be seeing this. And the theme was, quote, the new us. And the commercial was filled with vignettes, including um, interracial and gay couples as part of their storyline. You remember that? Uh, You remember Coke's campaign, America the Beautiful? And in that campaign, they created a collage of all sorts of different types of faces. General Mills, for one Super Bowl, uh, released one of the most popular ads. It was, you saw the reunion of mixed-race parents of Gracie. Do you remember Gracie? So Gracie is this little girl. She's super cute. And And then at the end, you meet both of her parents, and it's an interracial couple. So multiculturalism and diversity is now so much a part of American culture that it can actually encourage us to buy things like cereal, beverages, cars. But the value for difference, which we tend to think of as sort of this uh, progressive, modern development in society, is actually, and this is what we're going to talk about today, rooted in an ancient divine value. Let me read you a story. This is Genesis chapter 11. You guys interested? Okay, chapter 11, verses 1 and 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered all over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, when you hear this story, what message do you think it gives about difference and multiculturalism? Well, I don't know about you, but to me, and for years, when I heard this story, this is sort of what I thought. Wow. Humanity had it good. We were all together in one. We were united. And then we went and messed it up. We ticked off God. 
and he punished us by confusing our language and sending us all over the earth. Bummer. Man, why did we do that? But years later, I don't think that's what this story is about at all. You know, a friend pointed out to me a few chapter, that a few chapters earlier, when God creates humanity, he gives them a blessing and a command. And it says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Part of God's blessing was to send humanity throughout the whole earth and his instruction to subdue the earth was subdue, but not in terms of dominate the earth, but rather develop it in the same way that God had been created in developing humanity and all of creation. The command was to go. Fill the earth and create. Take what's there and make beautiful things out of it. Now, do you remember what humanity's motivation was, their concern, and the reason for building the tower? They were concerned that they would be, quote, scattered over the face of the earth. They didn't want to fill the whole earth. And what if the confusion of humanity's language as depicted in the story wasn't a punishment or a curse. But what if God was actually blessing humanity, protecting something good for humanity that he didn't want us to ignore? Difference, diversity. You see, our calling as a species was to spread throughout the world and creatively represent who God is to the whole planet. What would happen as we traveled around the world? Well, I think as we traveled, we would have seen new places. We would have discovered new resources. We would have developed new types of food as we encountered new types of spices. We would have started telling new and different stories based on where we were in the world. We would have developed different games. And over time, our languages would have changed. They would have diverged. They would have become different naturally, just on their own. And you can see that in a smaller way just right now. We have English in the United States. But in another place in the world called England, they speak English. But the languages are a little bit different. Have you noticed this? Uh, when's the last time, as an American, you put something in your boot? But the boot I'm talking about isn't on your foot. It's, it's the trunk of your car. Or where do you park your car, Americans? Parking garage, maybe? Or a car park? Or uh, <laughs> what do you play on Sundays? Or what do a lot of Americans play on Sunday? Football. Is that the same as the football they play in the United Kingdom? No, they, that, that's soccer, right? Anybody here wearing khaki pants? Yes, there are some people with khaki pants. Anyone? I want a bold person. Who's wearing khaki shorts or pants? Okay, we got it. All right. You guys, you know, for someone from the United States, that just means sort of beige trousers, right? Well, khaki in other parts of the world in the English language means poopy. And pants means underwear. So who's got khaki pants on today? Anyone? Oh, one man, khaki pants. Thank you. I will name you. That's Jason. I don't normally name people out in the audience, but today I will. That's Jason with khaki pants. Good on you, Jason. So the call, here's the point I'm making. The call to fill the whole earth, if embraced, would have led to the creation of different languages. 
in different cultures just naturally, right? And if what we're made to do is to represent God to all of creation, we would have to diversify. God is too big, too glorious to be crammed into one monolithic culture. One culture in one part of the world could never represent the fullness of God. And so God made sure that we would not shoot ourselves in the foot and forced us to fill the world by jump-starting the process when he confused our languages. And that's the story, the human story, that to fulfill our calling as human beings, we need difference, we need diversity, even if we didn't or we don't want it. Now, if you don't quite see this yet, I want to show you something else. So the first story we looked at was taken from Genesis. This next story, that's the first book of the Bible. This next story is taken from Revelation, uh, which is the last book in the Christian scriptures. And just so you know, a little plug, uh, we're in the season where all of our small groups are kicking back off. They'll all be starting up, if they haven't already, in October. And one group, Mauricio's group, uh, is going to focus on justice and how we can learn about it in the book of Revelation. Just a little plug for you right there. So Revelation chapter 21, here's what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and earth. And for the, fir- for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will, uh, God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. So, in the last book of the Bible, where we see where everything is headed, we literally see a picture of heaven coming to earth. This is where everything is put right. Every tear is wiped away. There's no more death. And what we find is that it's a place of ongoing culture. How do we know that? Well, first of all, it's a city with architecture. And then it says that the kings of all the earth will bring their splendor to it. And this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 60, which sort of describes this someday thing that will happen. And it describes the kings coming to this uh, new heavenly city, which is on earth. And it describes each distinct nation bringing their best. So Kedar brings their flocks. Sheba brings gold and incense. Midian brings camels. Lebanon brings timber. These are the best things about where they're from and their culture. And this is significant because the picture that we get at the end of the story is not just cultural, it's multicultural. People aren't leaving behind who they are and becoming something different in heaven. People are bringing who God has created them to be to a new heaven and earth. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says, every nation, tribe, people, and language. The only way that you can tell that it's every nation, tribe, people, and language is if it still looks like and sounds like and feels like every tribe, nation, people, and language. Every language, right? 
And this means that each nation is still distinct. Each people group still is who they were. The good things that God has put in them is, are not lost. They're continued into eternity. So it seems that diversity or multiculturalism or difference was actually God's idea first from the beginning to the end. Difference is God's idea and a gift to humanity. You see that? It's not this modern progression of society. If anything, maybe we're getting back to some of the things that he intended in the beginning. Maybe we're getting tastes of heaven on earth when difference in multiculturalism and diversity is embraced, when we learn from each other, when we come together but remain who we are. So if diversity, if multiculturalism is something we're created for, that helps us literally experience a taste of heaven come to earth, why then, when given a choice, like the folks at Babel, do we often choose environments and choose to create environments that are monocultural and not diverse at all? And research shows that this is true. So even among, a group, uh, among groups that have these stories, the, the scriptural stories, as the foundations of their lives of faith, Christina Cleveland has written a lot about this and done some research. Uh, and she wrote this. She says, Lifeway Research recently polled churchgoers and found that most are perfectly fine with the fact that Sunday morning remains one of the most ethnically segregated hours of the week. In fact, many people are more than fine with segregation. They defend it. The researchers reported that more than half, 53% of the churchgoers polled, disagree with the statement, my church needs to become more ethnically diverse. And about a third, 33%, strongly disagree with the statement. 86% of American Protestant churches are predominantly composed of one racial group. So, I think, in general, that our culture values diversity more and more, in theory. And in general, it tends to be forced on us in some ways because of our society and workplaces and common spaces that are more shared than they've ever been before. But when we get to choose and create our own spaces, the Babel principle seems to kick in. Let's keep it familiar. Let's keep it the same. Let's have one culture. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir a little bit today. Um, you're obviously churchgoers, <laughs> at least for today. And as I look around, I see quite a bit of diversity in different cultures represented here. And all of you have chosen to be here, surrounded by different people. And if you've been around a little bit, you know that our church is very much a work in progress. We have a lot to learn, even as we celebrate some of the really great things that are happening here. And I say this because the Babel effect is real. There are things that make living in a diverse community more difficult. There are reasons that sometimes it can seem more attractive or easier to congregate with people that feel just like us, whatever your us may be. And there are settings where that is appropriate. I'm not saying it's if you're ever in a situation where everybody's from the same cultural background that that's wrong. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that even in diverse environments, it's easy to connect to those like you and more work to get outside of those groups. And my hope is that if we're upfront about those things, that diverse environments, and particularly this church, become places where we discover who we really are in God. 
Now, why don't we like sometimes diverse environments? Let me just give you a few reasons. Let's just name some of these things. First, they expose our limitations. Homogeneous environments tend to reinforce, or environments where everyone is the same, reinforce what we assume to be true about life. Things that we just take for granted that can be really comforting and reassuring. Where diverse and multicultural environments put people with different perspectives right in our face. People who might not agree with us, people who have different perspectives, voted for different people, and post things on Facebook that make us angry. We don't usually like to be confronted with things, perspectives, lifestyles, cowboy fans, that may challenge <laughs> a sum What's so funny? that may challenge assumptions that we're comfortable with. When we do lose control of the world that we've created and the order of our life that we've most firmly established, it's a control thing. Christina Cleveland said this. She said, in racially diverse churches, I can't control the environment. Heck, I can't even predict it. People might worship in ways that make me uncomfortable. People might interpret scripture in ways that I deem heretical. People might not be able to relate to my experience as a black woman. Obviously, I'm reading what she said. <laughs> People might arrive too late or too early. People might hold perspectives that shatter my worldview. People might not laugh at my jokes. Who would want to attend a church like that? It's less comfortable. It can be harder, and you lose a sense of control. Second, why these environments can be more challenging is that they expose inequality. So let me tell you something about myself. I don't like there to be any problems. One of my problems is I don't like there to be any problems. On the Enneagram, I'm a nine, if you guys know that. That's a personality assessment tool. Uh, I'm a peacemaker. Uh, I help bring people together, and that's a good thing. I'm great for bringing people together. I'm a laid-back person. I feel at ease around nines, or people feel at ease around nines. But the flip side is that nines want to think that everything is okay all the time. That's me. And unchecked, I don't want to hear about problems or even opportunities because it seems like work or a problem. And I'll ignore them or I'll expect that they'll just work themselves out. And sometimes that means I won't take the action that I need to. All that is to say, I don't want to see inequality. Inequality means that there's a problem. Something has to change. But that's what happens in diverse communities. You see, know, and befriend people from all different backgrounds, experiences, places in life. Diverse means difference. It means some people have advantages that others don't. Some have been mistreated and even oppressed in ways that others haven't. And being meaningfully connected means you see that difference firsthand. It means that there are problems that demand action. And action requires sacrifice from me. If you meet people who have advantages that you haven't had. It's not fair. And it can make you angry. Why would you put yourself in an environment like that? There's a cost there. If you meet people that haven't had your advantages in life, it can make you anxious. Suddenly just posting about inequality on the internet isn't enough. Not when there's a real person in your life facing those same challenges. I'd rather not see inequality. But when I do, the call is to action, and action means sacrifice. Third, 
Diverse environments expose our false selves. Now, I don't know if you remember this. This is a recurring theme because this is a series that we're doing about community and how we can have a deep, healthy, or deeper and healthier community. But if you remember our, our diagram for the first two weeks, we're talking about why it's so hard to develop deep friendships, and this is the diagram I used to illustrate this. I think it's in here. Nope, that's not it. Can you go again? That's the only one? There it is. You see that? That's your true self. That's who you really are, okay? And around that, we find this other circle of thing. It's shame. Okay, these are all the ways that you have experienced in life that whatever is in the middle there isn't enough. Whoever you really are doesn't work, isn't good enough, is broken, whatever, can't please people. And so shame comes on top of that. And so to cover up that shame, we create this whole other circle, which is our false self. This is your profile on any dating app that you may be on. This is your profile on Facebook. This is, these are all the reasons why you're awesome that you tell everyone. Why uh, you're worth getting to know. The problem is it's created on top of shame. It's not who you really are necessarily. But when we see our limitations, when we come face to face with inequality, we're sort of losing some of the ways that we tell the rest of the world we're awesome. So that false self begins to break down a bit. Wait, the way I see the world isn't the only way to see it? And that prop for how I've become a great, successful, awesome person may not be true for or even valued by other people. Wait, that thing I've used as an excuse for giving myself a break in this area of life she considers a cop-out? Wait, all my success isn't solely due to my hard work alone. I had advantages that others didn't. What? And so all these things we built up to say we're so cool, we're so awesome, we start to find that other people don't see it that way or value the same things. And so that false stuff starts to break down. Our shame is exposed. That's not fun. But here's why we need it. We need it because when that happens, we start to see God and we also start to see where we fit. This whole series and the reason I'm preaching on this topic today is about how we can have depth in relationships in an environment where we seem to be able to connect broadly to more people than ever, but don't seem to know how to get below the surface. So two weeks ago, we used this diagram to say this is what we're going for. There we go. Vulnerability. When we're vulnerable, what is vulnerability? It's when that false self breaks down, even for a moment. By choice or by situation. When a piece of who we really are is shown, or when a piece of who we say we are breaks down, that's vulnerability. When that vulnerability is met by other people with commitment, when they stay with us, when they don't reject us when they see something true about us, or when they don't reject us when we realize that what we put out there isn't true, but they stay with us and committed to us, what happens then is that circle in the middle, the true self, is affirmed in who you really are, where you really fit, the things you're really made to do, gets a boost, gets encouraged, gets verified, gets affirmed. 
when our limitations are exposed, when we lose a bit of control, when cracks in our false self appear, when we're vulnerable and it's met with commitment, you're not rejected, you find out what's really true about you, where you really fit. And your true self comes to life. Have you ever had those experiences in your life where you just feel really alive? That's when your true self is doing what you're made to do. Experiencing life as it's made to be. It's kind of like, if all of our puzzle pieces were exactly the same, how could we connect to others? It doesn't work. Puzzle pieces have to be different so they connect to things that are different than them, and that's what makes a beautiful picture. And this is the depths of relationship, what we're looking for, and it comes through exposure to people who are different from us, yet commit to us, and in doing so, help affirm who we really are and where we really fit. God knew what he was doing when he scattered people all over the earth. And if we'd stayed together in one culture, not only would we have lost a full picture of who God is, but we would have lost a deeper way of relating and fitting that difference makes possible. And this is a high value for us here. Our name is Mosaic. Do you know what a mosaic is? A mosaic is all these pieces of material from all sorts of different sources, broken up, not uniform, different, being held together by something bigger than them to make a beautiful picture. You're different from the people around you. You're a little jagged around the edges sometimes. So am I. But the promise we have is that Jesus can pull us together and make something really beautiful. And that actually the picture we see from these stories is that the, the face of God, the beauty of God, is seen in diverse things coming together and being unified, even as they say different. Every little piece of that mosaic is different. We're not looking to sand you down and make you just like everyone else so we have this perfect little square, perfect little square. We like those mosaics that are full of jagged little pieces that aren't perfect. All sorts of colors and shapes and sizes pulled together in the, the cement of Jesus to make something very, very beautiful. God knew what he was doing. And I think that's what God had in mind. And that's what heaven comes to earth looks like. That's why it's worth the extra inconveniences and sacrifices. That's the payoff. Does that make sense? So let me just give you a few tips about how you can sort of lean into this if it sounds like something you want more of. And again, I'm not saying there aren't environments that you can be with people just like you and that that's always unhealthy. I'm just saying we need difference as well. Four ways to begin to experience heaven come to earth. First, be intentional. There's probably a lot to say here, but I'll just say real relationships with people who may be a bit different from you don't happen at a distance, right? It takes specific intentional action. There's lots of ways you can do that. But it takes leaning in, taking a risk, becoming a part of a small group with people that you don't know. You don't know what to expect. Talking to, getting lunch with, leaning into, 
having over someone who comes from a different background, has a different life experience from you, is older, is younger, whatever it is. Second, be a learner. What do I mean? Well, what I'd encourage you to be is uh, learners are, are, are sensitive. What do I mean by sensitive? It's not walking on eggshells. Uh, it's learning versus walking on eggshells. Sensitivity uh, is the intentional acquisition of knowledge in order to relate empathetically to a person of a different, different ethnicity or culture. I took that from Breaking Down Walls. It's about it's a purposeful learning so that you can relate better. And the goal is not to be careful, but to learn. Third, be sincere. What does sincerity look like? It, it's being direct, honest, and vulnerable. Let your experience be heard. You know, we have a long way to go. We're, we're in the process of learning. We will always be learning how to do this in our community. Help us get there. And last, be committed. And this is huge. This means hanging in there when it gets tough. It means not running away. It means knowing that someone is in it for the long haul is what creates an environment of safety. Let's pray. So our prayer today, this morning, God, is that um, you would help us to more and more live out uh, the vision that is our name as imperfect people from different backgrounds, that because of you, we could come together, and that through that experience, man, we could see you more clearly, we would understand ourselves better. And we could experience more of what it means to be alive. More what it means to be who you created us to be. And we ask humbly that our little corner of the world here, that we could experience a little bit of that heaven coming to earth. What you created us to be, reflecting who you are and all of your diversity and all of your beauty. That we each get to be a part of that together. In Jesus' name.